Larry, hello again. Well, we're back for part three. Part three on our full range leadership and leadership theories discussion. Right, on our spectrum of leadership with the with 10 popular leadership approaches. Well, let's talk about where we've been so far. Just a quick wrap up of, and then we'll discuss where we're going today in part three. Okay, uh, let's take about 90 seconds here and I'll kind of walk for you where we've been. Uh, we've come to the, the understanding that there's no consensus on the definition of a leader or what constitutes effectual leadership. Uh, there's many different definitions, as there are people who write about it. And now, with that said, though, the Army does have an Army definition. It does. And ADRP 622, paragraph 1-1, gives you the Army definition. But in scholarly research out in academia, there is no consensus on what that definition is. That's right. That's correct. Leadership is an influence dyad between a leader and a follower, therefore a relationship in our eyes. Without power, there is no influence. So leadership is, there has to be a power relationship uh, in order for influence to occur and therefore for leadership to occur. Leaders are people. Leadership is a process. Leadership isn't people, and people aren't leadership. Okay? Leaders are people. Last time, we covered three approaches. We talked about laissez-faire leadership, and I'm sure it's going to come up again uh, today as we talk about transactional leadership. It seems like we're fighting this uh, almost like a new age approach to to this laissez-faire leadership. If you Google laissez-faire leadership, the top 10 hits are going to, probably 80% of them will show laissez-faire leadership in some sort of positive light. Yeah, and I'm not sure I understand the the rehabilitative intent behind most of it because the leadership research uh, is pretty strong that there's a negative correlation between laissez-faire leadership and almost all influence-related benchmarks. Laissez-faire leadership is not mission command. It is not mission command. And we're going to talk about that at length when we get to management by exception as part of transactional leadership. So we'll come back to that, I think, later on in the program here. And we talked about trait and attribute approaches last time, uh, where a leader's characteristics are assumed to be different from those people who are not leaders. However, like a lot of things in the leadership arena, there's no consensus on which traits or attributes are required for effectual leadership. The same applies to behavioral approaches. Behavioral approaches deal with skills and competencies and assume that a leader's conduct is different from the conduct of people who are either non-leaders or ineffective leaders. And again, there's no consensus as to what those effective behaviors are or aren't. So today we're going to cover four additional leadership approaches. We're going to do transactional leadership up front, kind of get that out of the way. Uh, Then we're going to talk about contingency leadership, often referred to as situational leadership. We're going to talk a little bit about path goal leadership. And finally, leader member exchange. And I'd like to point out one last time, we do this at every show, and I think it's important for us to rehash that the principle of equifinality applies. Okay, there's more than one way to skin a cat when it comes to leadership. And that you and I, when we talk about leadership, tend to explain things in unlearned fashion because we're unlearned men ourselves. Okay, let's talk transactional leadership. Okay, transactional leadership was first articulated or attributed to Max Weber. He of the the mechanized bureaucratic model of how organizations are supposed to function. Now, you got to remember, Max Weber saw everything through a mechanistic lens through a routinized lens, and that everything was about efficiency and effectiveness. Transactional leadership contractualizes the influence process between leader and follower. Now, Weber's theory has been picked up on by Bernard Bass and Bruce Aviolo as part of their full range of leadership. Uh, and as a result, it's, it, it is grounded uh, in kind of management principles. Now, transactional leadership relies on almost exclusively on legitimate power reward power and coercive power as its influence means. 
It's really a quid pro quo. It's an exchange of this for that using legitimate authority. It usually drives at, if you do what I ask you to do, we will pay you. If you do better than I ask you to do, you'll get a reward. And if you don't do what I'm going to tell you to do, we're going to punish you in some regard, fire you, demote you, what have you. So the problem with it, as you might guess, is it's pretty hard to get people either engaged or beyond minimal commitment with such an approach. Mm-hmm. Like I said, it's most likely, most of the time, linked to management. Uh, and it's really made up of two subcompetencies when we look at transactional leadership. It's made up of contingent reward, which is where we use rewards or punishments to positively or negatively reinforce what it is followers do. Really leverages our legitimate power and it rewards or punishes. The second part of transactional leadership is what we call management by exception. And we're going to talk about management by exception here in a couple different lights. First, management by exception or MBE identifies and remediates any type of deviation or off-nominal practice that we find. Okay? So there's two parts to management by exception. There's what we call active management by exception or active MBE, which proactively monitors and takes immediate corrective action in the event of a deviation. Now, I know what you're thinking. Yeah, it sounds an awful lot like uh, micromanagement. Right, it does. And it's very easy to, cons- to, you know, to make that connection. And it's probably accurate uh, because the leader is very proactive in identifying any type of deviation which might occur and then taking steps to head it off. So I, I think your, your analogy, your connection there is probably very valid. Now, MBE passive or passive management by exception reactively responds to shortfalls, but only when it appears as though our goals or our task accomplishment is in danger. Mm-hmm. Okay, now remember with transactional leadership, you notice in there there's not a lot of discussion about follower development or making people better. Because it's linked to management, transactional leadership doesn't really care about people. It cares about goal attainment. Okay, it cares about impersonal functioning of the organization. Accomplishing the mission. Accomplishing the mission. Get the task done. Okay, well, I've got to do, I can't, transactional leadership really doesn't care. It's made the request of you and expects you to get that done. Okay, very transactional. Through via some sort of reward or punishment. With some sort of reward or punishment in the end, yes. Okay. Or legitimate request. Now, there are organizations that based off their hierarchy, because you're higher than I am in the hierarchy, you have more rank than I do, okay, or you're my boss, you can make a legitimate request. You can simply say, I need you to do this mm-hmm. by this time, this date, and expect the follower to comply based off of the legitimate structure of the organization. Going back to our first episode where we were discussing full range leadership and we were discussing transactional leadership, you'd made the point that no one theory is necessarily better than the other. And I remember kind of arguing, come on, there's got to be something better than transactional leadership. And your response to that was, well, sometimes transactional leadership is the appropriate approach, depending on what the situation is. When we need compliance or we need to attain a short-term goal, I need you to take that hill now, not ask questions, or or dealing with life health safety issues. What are some other cases where you might see transactional leadership as the appropriate as the appropriate approach for a given situation? Well, often when we deal with resistance, let's say that we have a follower whose willingness level is that of resistance. They don't want to do what it is we're asking them to do. Okay, at that point, we may not be able to be transformational in nature. We may not be able to use referential power or expert power to influence them. It may take legitimate authority 
in either the form of a threat or the promise of a reward in order to get them to comply with what it is we're trying to do. Remember, transactional leadership tends to beget either resistance as a follower willingness or compliance as follower willingness. Okay, usually it's tough to get commitment by being transactional, and it's certainly very difficult to get engagement by being transactional. I guess if we had a significant enough reward, we might be able to get commitment and maybe engagement, but not as a normal way of doing business. And just, we'll probably cover this more in the future, but from a leader's perspective, maybe somebody has a developed leader identity, they have a high level of self-awareness and they place themselves at the higher end of the spectrum when it comes to charisma and maturity. But I've got that that special case and I maybe need to drop down to a lower gear, maybe with one particular individual. I see that even in being a parent. I want to be this you know, transformational parent and inspire and, and always be Socratic with my questioning of my children. But you know what? Sometimes I'm like, you know what? Just do what I say or you're going to bed. Or sometimes I'm tired at the end of the day and I just check out and just you know, whatever. If they're, if they're going to beat each other up, I, I just don't have the energy right now to deal with it. Maybe the, And that would be laissez-faire leadership. Yes, I go right to my laissez-faire parenthood. Yes. But there are times I'm bouncing all over. I'm not always in one place at all times. It, it depends on the situation. Depends on my own on my own levels of energy and what's going on. But it's I think it, what's really important is the awareness of what we are doing. Right, and I think it's it's important for us to note that in almost every setting, transactional leadership is required. Okay, there's in almost every setting, in almost every leader follower dyad, there are times that transactional influence is going to occur. In fact, the Army leadership doctrine is heavily nested in transactional leadership. It speaks to the term commander, which implies legitimate authority with the ability to reward and punish more than 70 times. Like we said previously, it uses the term superior and subordinate, which implies legitimate authority, reward power, coercive power, almost 300 times. So in almost every setting, transactional leadership is required and necessary. It's a necessary component. We have it in the Army Civilian Corps. DP MAP is transactional leadership. It contractualizes the leader-follower relationship. It says, this is what we've agreed to do over the course of the next year. At the end of the year, if you haven't done that, we're going to punish you and put you on a pip. Or if you've gone beyond it, we're going to reward you, give you a bonus, maybe a promotion. So transactional leadership is a necessary component in almost every setting. And then going back to our first episode, we did discuss laissez-faire, we discussed transactional, and we discussed transformational. Now, in part four in our next episode, we're going to go into a deeper dive into transformational. But a good way to look at comparing and contrasting transactional and transformational would be to refer to Dan Pink in his book, Drive. And there's a really good YouTube video if you just do a search for Dan Pink, Drive, the surprising uh, factor of what motivates us. RSA Animate does a pretty neat little sketch of that with a dry erase marker and board. Have you seen that video? That's great. It's a great it's a great setting in, ter- in terms of appealing to higher order needs. Transactional leadership tends to drive at lower order needs. If we think of Maslow's hierarchy uh, in terms of security, that's kind of where transactional leadership points at in terms of meeting needs. Mm-hmm. We'd like for transformational leadership to hit some of those higher order needs. I may have to edit this out. This, I don't want this to take a political path, but when you look at countries where they prefer dictatorship? Could it be that the followers are at the low end of Maslow hierarchy of needs? What they're worried about are food, shelter, those basic essential items. 
and it seems like a, a dictator at that point is what's going to help me get that. I, well, it's like, again, we, even if we looked at a dictator, we'd say a dictator gets his authority, gets his authority or her authority from legitimate authority. They possess more power. Okay, they have the ability to punish. They have the ability to reward. And my thought was, though, that it's almost preferred, it seems, in certain certain Cultures. settings, I think, where the followers are at that bottom level of the hierarchy of needs. I'm just – I just need basic survival. Well, and think about, think about the political spectrum. There are people who vote from Maslow's lower end of the, of the hierarchy of needs, and there are people who vote from the higher end, depending on what their motivation is, to the higher level needs found along Maslow's hierarchy. I think our uh, our fears drive our politics or what we perceive we need from a leader and the, and I think where we are on Maslow's hierarchy of needs drives our fears. That's probably it's probably I think it's accurate. I think it's very accurate. Well, let's dive into this this discussion about what mission command is and what mission command isn't. Okay, and which leadership approach tends to fit best with mission command. So if we look at mission command, Mission command is made up of five principles. We've got mutual trust, shared understanding, commander's intent, mission orders, and prudent risk. Here's how it connects to management by exception. Okay, for example, when we talk about mutual trust, mutual trust, management by exception would say you have to allow followers decision-making authority. Okay, that's an MBE principle. So mutual trust links into allowing followers decision-making authority. Mission command calls for shared understanding. Shared understanding between you and I, from a management by exception perspective, would be you and I have an explicit agreement about what's expected. Right. Okay? So there's a connection there. Mission command calls for the commander's intent. Transactional leadership, the management by exception principle, says that leaders are to articulate clear follower expectations. All right, again, there's a connection there in terms of similarity. Mission command says we execute mission orders. Manager by exception says you set the goals and let people figure out how to do it. And we talk in terms of mission orders. That's really given the five W's, the who, what, where, when, why, big emphasis on the why, but not the how. Right. And remember, during mission command, we want to allow people the freedom of action in accordance with our intent. Remember, under mission command, it's disciplined freedom of action in accordance with the commander's intent, not unobliterated or you know, ungoverned freedom of action. Mm-hmm. You're supposed to nest your actions within the intent. And I just wanted to delineate the difference between like formal orders and when we get an op order or a frag order. Well, sure. And we can it, practice mission orders even with a, in, in any type of setting. Exactly. When we, whenever we're given the intent or the why in our army civilian environments, we're not going to necessarily be receiving formal orders d- depending. I mean, it could depend, but whenever we're receiving that, that intent, that what that is the, the mission orders. So just, sure. Sure. And we, and, and you would, you would hope that your presence is that of where you articulate your intent clearly so that people understand what goals you want achieved and allow them to figure out how to do it. Okay, but even the articulating of a goal is in influence action. Okay, remember now, laissez-faire stands for, means uh, to let things happen, to allow things to happen. It means hands-off. It means absentee leadership. For example, let's, let's go back to Band of Brothers. Let's talk Band of Brothers here for a minute because there's a character in the series that really manifests himself as a laissez-faire leader, and that's Lieutenant Dyke. Yeah, he came later on in the series during the Battle of the Bulge. Right. He was the new Easy Company commander. Right, right, during the Battle of the Bulge, and, they, and he was known as Foxhole Norman, okay, because he would hide in his foxhole while the activity was occurring around him. That's a laissez-faire leader. He is allowing things to happen. 
by no means is he practicing mission command. There was a point, too, I think the uh, they were trying to assess what they were going to do as the battle. And there was some there was some difficult conversation going on. He looked at his watch and he's like, well, look at there. I've got a meeting back at regiment, jumped in a Jeep and left them all. And basically created a, a leadership vacuum at that point where the first sergeant had to uh, basically assume the role of the company commander. Right. And laissez-faire leadership is synonymous with the absence of leadership, the absence of influence, which is exactly what Lieutenant Dyke is demonstrating by leaving or abdicating his responsibility in a time of need, which is synonymous with what laissez-faire leadership is described as. And again, it's not mission command. It is not mission command. There really is very little positive when we talk about laissez-faire leadership or the research behind laissez-faire leadership. Right. It's, it's considered hollow leadership. It's considered, it's considered uninfluential. So the minute that we're engaged in any type of influence activity, we're no longer engaged in laissez-faire leadership. We're not just letting things happen. We're attempting to direct or control them or influence them. Okay, so we're good on transactional leadership? Yep, so, so far, yep, we've covered transactional leadership. Time to transition now into contingency leadership. Good, let's talk contingency leadership, all right? Because contingency leadership and situational leadership, the terms tend to be used interchangeably. Situational leadership is used a lot more often. It's really nested in contingency leadership. Now, contingency leadership assumes that there's no one best leadership approach. So it's contingent upon the situation. Situation and the followers. And the followers. And the followers. And we'll talk a little bit about, about contingency leadership and situational leadership here in, in, in a little bit more in depth. But it assumes that there's no best leadership approach, no best collection of traits, or no set of effective influence behaviors that are that are discrete. Okay? And we now, you've heard of Blanchard and Hershey. Yep. Okay. Uh, Ken Blanchard and Paul Hershey are, are normally seen as the followers of Sit Lead, but contingency leadership really goes all the way back to the late 1950s to to Fred Fiedler, and he assumes Fiedler assume Fiedler assumes that uh, contingent leadership approaches are adaptive and serve to provide coherence to the organization. Okay, because it it changes based off some internal and external variables. So it's very useful and very concrete when it comes time to leading. It's got wide cross-cultural application, um, and it assumes that all followers are different and that all situations are, uni- are, are different as well. So it's based off of the followers and the, and the situation. Leaders are expected to play the hand they're dealt to the best of their abilities. Okay, and what are some of the pros and cons of contingent leadership? Well, when we get to contingent leadership, you got to remember that the – it's really responsive to the environment, and it's really responsive to the people that we have. For example, contingent leaders closely monitor the situation that's going on around them. Now, remember, leadership, we want leaders focused externally. We want managers focused internally. But when we're focused on the external environment, it allows us then to adjust what it is we're doing for the organization, our vision, our strategy, uh, the tasks carried out to affect the strategy, where we're going to accept risk, how we're going to prioritize resources, what decisions we're going to make. Those are all leader functions that are driven by closely monitoring the external environment. Mm-hmm. If we're not monitoring the external environment, then we're not changing in accordance with what we're finding in our macro environment, our micro environment, or our competitive environment. Would you say it's true that someone who has mastered the contingent leadership approach is probably likely to be flexible? Very, very much so. Flexibility is a great term. Adaptability, malleability, the ability to change, the ability to react, 
not to be locked into one best approach. In fact, there's a lot of research that shows that leaders who refuse to adapt and who aren't flexible a lot of times fail or are less effective in specific positions or in particular domains. And oftentimes then with the contingent leaders or situational leaders, when you ask them, well, well how would you react in this given situation? The response is always going to be, it depends. It depends. And there's a couple things associated with contingent leadership that we probably ought to keep in mind. Contingent leaders tend to have a foot in every camp. Okay, they tend to see things from a different, from a large, different, a large setting of perspectives. Okay, they they can see things from a, a variety of perspectives. As a result, there are two things that are normally associated with contingent leaders. One, they might have trouble making a decision. Their decision making might be slower. Okay, because they can see things from multiple perspectives. Mm-hmm. Okay, so as a result, they're not going to devolve to one decision making technique. Um, all the time. And the second thing is, is you may not necessarily know from a follower's perspective how to engage with that leader because you don't know what type of response you're going to get. Okay, if you have somebody who's a rules-based leader, somebody who's very transactional, you know that when you engage with them, they're going to come back to you from a rules-based perspective or a logic-based perspective. If we're engaged with somebody who's a servant leader, they're always going to take and respond to you from a personal standpoint. How does this affect our people? If we think somebody's transformational, they may come back to you and respond in a very transformational way and tell you how to make a change. Remember now, our contingent leaders have a foot in each camp, and therefore, you may not necessarily know what type of response to expect when when it comes time for the influence dyad to occur. So let's talk a little bit about path goal. Okay, so our third approach for this episode, the path goal. Path goal theory. Now, path goal theory... Sounds a lot. Uh, sounds is going to sound similar to you to situational leadership, but we're going to we're going to discriminate between the two here for you at the end. But let's talk about what path goal is up front. First, it's driven towards full follower actualization in accordance with organizational requirements. Okay, so it's really a two part equation there. We want to make people better by articulating the right path for them in terms of their development. But we want to articulate that path in such a way as it's not contrary to organizational goals. When I first started familiarizing myself with the path goal theory, I see a lot of leaders helping others self-actualize. They set a set of goals. I'm going to help them get there. I said, well, that sounds an awful lot like servant leadership. Right. And you'd you'd be accurate in that assessment. The difference is, is under servant leadership, a true servant leader, somebody who is really nested in servant leadership principles would tell you, I don't care about organizational goals. I don't care about task accomplishment. If I get the followers correct and I develop them to their fullest extent possible, those things will take care of themselves. Okay, so they actually do care about the organizational goals, but that's not their focus. Their focus is on developing people and the rest will fall. Right, right. And it, the, the difference is in path goal theory, we want followers developed to their fullest potential. We want them to self-actualize. Where they focus on organizational goals. While being nested with the organizational goals and contributing to those organizational okay. goals. Okay, so that's kind of where the difference is between them. This is a very strengths-based approach. To leadership, we start talking about talking about path goals. We have to identify followers' strengths and developmental activities in accordance with their strengths, while dealing with their deficits. And I know we had mentioned this a little bit in the last episode, and it might be more of our opinion, but I think you and I share the opinion that you are going to get a better return on investment if you focus on honing in and refining your strengths versus on devoting a whole lot of time and resources to trying to turn a weakness into a strength. 
there's absolutely opportunity to become aware of our weaknesses and to and, and to improve those where we can. But we're probably going to make more money with really honing in and focusing on our strengths. I, I'm sure people are going to disagree. All right. Superior performance is found in maximizing our strengths, okay, not remediating our deficits. Deficit remediation leads to average performance, normally average performance at best. If we want superior performance, we have to actualize the natural things that people are inclined to do well and develop those to the fullest extent possible. As part of path goal theory, what we want to do is we want to remove the obstacles to that development. And we want that development to be harmonious with what it is we're trying to achieve as an organization. All right, so that's what path goal theory is all about. Like I said, it differs from situational leadership in two areas. Okay, the transcendent purpose of path goal theory is follower development, not organizational effectiveness. Okay, it's about the people. And the second part is, is the leader is required to articulate and enact the follower development initiatives that they articulate, okay, both personal and for tasks. Mm -hmm. Under path goal theory, the workplace and the professional development are not bifurcated, okay, they're nested with one another. So path goal theory extends into your personal development as well as your professional development. This reminds me a lot of the IDP, the individual development plan that we're required, that we're all required as Army civilian professionals to have. What are your thoughts on the alignment of the IDP and the and the leader and the follower? Yeah, I think it's that's where we kind of want to be, right? We want to, with an IDP, we want to articulate the things necessary to improve the follower from a follower perspective. And this is, and, and it really is, I hadn't really thought about it until you just said it, but the IDP really encapsulates path goal theory. It talks about professional advancement. It talks about personal advancement. And it talks about those things in conjunction with harmonious goals of the organization. And again, my opinion, my purely James's opinion, when I look at it, the operational environment, when it comes to IDPs, I would say about half the population values it and takes it seriously and is updating it and making sure that it's relevant, where the other half does it to check a block because it's required. So if your IDP doesn't really have a whole lot of meeting and it's just a check a block because it's a requirement, it probably isn't going to facilitate this path goal, this path goal approach versus someone who takes their own developmental approach, have their own goals in mind and can articulate those with a leader who's also willing to facilitate the development. Yeah, I think it'd make it, you're making a great point. A DP map is very transactional because it speaks to professional accomplishments within the hierarchy of the organization. Okay, so DP map I would equate with transactional leadership, but I think you make a great point that the IDP is a tool for path goal theory to be implemented. It lays out personal goals, it lays out professional goals, and it does so in harmonious growth with the organization. It's got to have meaning though if it's going to work. It has to be, has to. It has to have some teeth to it. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we want to talk a little bit about mem leader member exchange. So our fourth leadership theory for this episode LMX, Leader LMX Exchange. LMX. And I would tell you there are a lot of advocates for LMX. And when I explain it to you, you're probably going to understand why. Okay. Okay. Leader member exchange theory is focused on a leader follower dyad as a discrete relationship. Sounds pretty good, right? Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a relationship between a leader and a follower and the exchanges that occur between them. It's focused on the quality of our exchange. Okay, the quality of our relationship as a leader or follower is what drives the influence. It seeks improved outcomes for both you and I. 
you as the follower, me as the leader, or vice versa. Mm -hmm. All right? He wants to make both of us the beneficiaries of our relationship. Now, George Graham and Mary Eulbane have kind of served as LMX's most vocal advocates for almost 50 years. And they identify really three things that go in to the leader-follower diet, and it's quality. Your attributes as a leader, my attributes as a follower, and then the nature of our relationship. You might have great attributes and I might have great attributes, but if we have no qualitative relationship, the exchange is not going to be very beneficial for either one of us. I have an opinion on LMX, and feel free to, to tell me where maybe I'm wrong on this, but when, based on what I know about LMX and what I've seen out in the real world, is it seems to, it could easily per be perceived as favoritism or that there's an in-group and an out-group or there tends to be a good old boys club that either I'm a part of or not a part of. Does that have anything to do with LMX? Well, sure, because if we, if we say that our relationship dyad is unique, and under LMX, you're supposed to have a discreet and unique relationship as a leader with every follower. Okay, every follower you have, you have a discreet and different relationship. Those relationships will vary based in quality. Okay, so somebody's getting treated differently than, than somebody else. Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly. And so this brings us back to an ethical question. What is your standard for fairness? Okay, what is your fairness for, what is your standard for fairness? Is your fairness standard justice? Justice, each getting what they deserve. Each getting what they deserve, no more, no less. Okay? Or is it equality, where you get the same as everybody else? What is the standard for fairness? LMX assumes a justice standard for fairness, not an equality standard for fairness. So my higher performers are going to be treated different than my lower performers, or those that have better interpersonal skills will be treated differently than those that don't. And some may be perfectly fine with that. In fact, that sounds reasonable to, I think, probably most of the people listening to this. Right, right. And it comes down to justice. Have they deserved what they are receiving? But am I putting myself in a situation now as a leader to where if I'm not treating everybody the same in accordance with policy and I don't know, is there a downside or a dark side of LMX? Well, I think there's a standard. There's a minimum standard that we've identified, obviously, with the uh, PPPs and MSPs of what's acceptable and what's not. And, and I think as long as you're above board to the with the PPPs, the MSPs, you're on solid footing with LMX. Then when we're talking about then we're talking about LMX, let's 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 be very clear. LMX does not see all followers universally. It says and it assumes that there's a difference among followers. Okay? It treats followers as unique people and that they're all different. Okay? It does not make and if you look at a lot of the other leadership theories, they will tell you that the leader's attributes, the leader's behaviors, or the leader's approaches are what's important. LMX says, no, it comes down to leader-follower matching. Okay, that leaders and followers, the quality of their relationship is unique. Okay, that not everyone is created the same. Okay. All right, so each dyad is considered distinctive. Just as a quick recap, too. So you and I are, we have the balcony view. We're looking out at the world. Tell me what a stereotypical transactional leader looks like. Uh, somebody who says, who comes into you and says, James, I need you to do X, Y, and Z. And if you don't do X, and if you, you'll say, well, I can't do that. Then they're going to say, James, if you don't do X, Y, and Z, I'm going to punish you or reward you. Okay. Okay. That's, it's based off of legitimate requests, either overt or covert, 
rewards and punishments. A person operating under management by exception active, what does that look like? Somebody who tells you what to do and then comes to check up on you. Okay. The micromanager. Could be. Okay. Could be. Very the, much so. The passive approach to management by exception. They're probably going to get involved in what it is you're doing when their boss asks them about it. And it can look a lot like mission command. It could Now, remember, management by exception. I didn't, I didn't discriminate on whether or not management by exception active or passive was mission command. I think there are tenets from both active and passive mission command embedded, or active and passive management by exception embedded in mission command. But if we say that management by exception active looks an awful lot like micromanagement, I see micromanagement as being the, the complete opposite of what mission command is. It could be, but if we're, we wouldn't, we would, if we ask someone for a status report, okay? Mm-hmm. So let's say that we've assigned a mission to someone and we ask them to provide us a status. That would be proactive in determining where they are in the execution of that task. That would be managed by exception active. It's a proactive look at where we're at. Okay. I don't necessarily know that that's micromanagement. I don't consider that micromanagement. It's proactively identifying how the operation is going and whether or not there's a deviation or some sort of off-nominal occurrence taking place. Tell me what the, the stereotypical contingency leader is going to look like. Okay, the stereotypical contingency leader is going to come into an organization and identify what's going on in the external environment, take a look at their followers, and influence in accordance with both of those variables. Okay. And it's not just the followers. It could also be the internal structure of the organization. Remember, we talk internal and external variables drive the contingent leader's behavior. Okay, it could be the structure, it could be the processes, it could be the procedures. Internal variables. External variables are normally going to be associated with our environment. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah, contingent leaders, situational leaders are going to tend to look, assess the situation, see things through multiple perspectives, possibly a little bit slower in decision-making, maybe appear not as decisive, but they're taking it all in and deciding what tools they need to employ based on what's going on in the environment. Right. No one best way to lead. Okay. No one best way to influence. So they're going to look around, assess the external environment and the variables, internal environment and the variables, and then determine what they think is the best approach. And tell me what Mr. Path goal leader looks like. He looks like somebody, when you go in and sit down with your boss and you review your IDP, I think you you hit it spot on. Okay. They're going to be someone who identifies for you what it is they think you need to do personally, what you need to do professionally, and make sure that the things that they identify for you to do are nested with the organizational goals. Okay. Remember, when we talk about path goal, part of the leader's job is to remove the obstacles along the path that you would be following. Okay, tell me what Mrs. Leader Member Exchange Leader looks like. Well, it probably looks like most, I would submit to you, most leaders. Most leaders look at their, hopefully they, well, I don't want to say most leaders. Most of them, all right, let me. Let me no, let I think me, you're on to something because just as humans, we're going to treat people differently depending on what they can do. Right, we would. And I think we, what we, what we would, uh, a typical LMX leader would assess the leader understand their relationship with the leader and seek to improve the relationship between them. Okay. And so I think that's where we're, we talk about leader member exchange. We're talking about the quality of the relationship, the quality of the exchange between the leader and follower, the quality of that dyad. So a typical LMX person is going to look at you as a follower, understand what they are as a leader, and then seek the optimal relationship between you. I see. And those relationships will vary and it could Sure. It certainly is. It's not equality. It's not equality. It's justice. 
Okay, it's a just relationship, not an equal relationship. Any other final points to discuss? No, I think what we want to do is uh, we will have covered at the end of this one now, we've, we've covered seven of the 10 different leadership approaches. We're going to cover the final three and we're going to cross over into charismatic leadership. So far, we've been based off of things we wouldn't consider charismatic leadership, attributes, behaviors, transactional leadership, exchanges. When we cross over and we come back next time, we're going to talk about charismatic leadership a little bit and the forms that charismatic leadership tends to take. Transformational leadership, authentic leadership, and servant leadership. Thank you, Larry. You're welcome.